Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbley, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcasts. For more information on the Biota Podcasts, check out biota.org slash podcast. We have two callers on the line. Hi, Tom. This is Larry Yeager. Oh, Larry, wonderful to have you on the line. I'll just bring in our second caller. Hey, uh, this is uh, Ed from uh, Indiana. Good to talk to you, Ed. So normally we have news and notes, but I just have a, a couple of quick notes. The next episode, Friday, September 19th at 8 p.m. Pacific, is Publicize Your Project, which I believe was submitted by Scott Davis, former Biota Live participant, and maybe he'll even be on the call next week, but it's a topic that's very important to artificial life developers. And three quick shout-outs before we get on with this evening's show. Firstly, with regards to the CERN switch-on, people may wonder what the connection is with regards to artificial life. Well, former Biota participant Pedro Ferreira works at CERN. He's also developed with Noble Ape, and he's an extraordinary fellow, so I'd like to send a shout-out to Pedro. I had word from Steve Grant this week that he survived Hurricane Gustav, and he seems to be fighting back with a chainsaw. I can't really understand why Channel 4 in the UK doesn't sponsor a reality TV show with regards to Steve Grant surviving in Louisiana. But anyway, Steve will uh, participate in a future Bios Live when he releases his new game, so a shout-out to Steve. And finally, Gerald de Jong, who is now writing for the Grey Sun blog. And the topic for this evening, Larry, you're the topic for this evening. I feel on the spot. I was thinking about doing this, uh, how to possibly introduce you in a way which uh, would be meaningful and also get into some of the meaty topics that I'd like to discuss this evening. So what I'm going to do is actually pass the listeners back to your website for a kind of more detailed introduction to who you are. But I was interested in a particular turning point in your life in the late 80s when you were working in films with Jim Henson and George Lucas, and then you were invited to join the Vivarium Project at Apple. Can you describe this period of time and what led you towards artificial life? As you say, I was working at a place called Digital Productions and doing computer graphics special effects for, for films. And indeed, we did the opening title sequence for a film called Labyrinth, and uh, we featured this owl flying around in a void and interacting with mirrors and pools of water and so on. But uh, the folks at Apple Computer, uh, in particular, Alan Kay and Ann Marion, became aware of us. I'm not sure if it was through Labyrinth or not, but they came to us specifically to do a kind of animation of animals, of, of organisms in a simulated ecology. They were doing a really interesting thing. They were going to put together an ecology in the computer and have it simulated on an Evans and Sutherland flight simulator, which uh, you know was an incredibly powerful machine, a multi-million dollar computer that was very good at graphics and very, very fast graphics, and with the idea being that uh, they could simulate a graphical user interface of the future. Alan was always a firm believer in using the absolute most advanced tools you could today because by the time your research sees the light of day, that's what the public will have by then. So it's a very, very smart move. He's famous for saying the best way to to predict the future is to invent it, and that's what we were trying to do there. And certainly Polyworld came out of the Vivarium program, but you actually did quite a bit of work before you or I'm, I'm not really clear whether you're doing a lot of development prior to Polyworld or whether Polyworld was actually really the concluding work from the Vivarium program. Can you talk a little bit about that? The Vivarium program always did have the idea of this ecology in the computer, but really the focus for Vivarium, for Alan, Kay, and, and Anne, were to, um, to use that ecology as a forcing function 
for user interface design and improvement of education. The idea being, if you had a system, if you had a software programming environment, essentially, where you could describe the behaviors of all these individual agents and all the interactions between the agents and build up this entire ecology, but it was usable by kindergarten through sixth grade, uh, elementary school children, you'd have something that by definition was extremely powerful and extremely easy to use. And so there was the idea that Alan, also uh, he's famous for his aphorisms actually, which instead of uh, you can't have a a goal for a research program, uh, that's like saying I'm going to now invent the flying buttress, Uh, but you can have a direction. And so their direction was to go in, in towards this improved user interface and improved and powerful programming environment with a, a great user interface. So, but I just became interested in the underlying technology and uh, biology of such a, uh, a computational ecology. And Alan deliberately, willfully fostering an environment where you should study what you want to study and learn what you want to learn allowed me to go off to the very first neural network conferences, like the first two or three in a row that it came into existence, and the first neural information processing systems conference, NIPS, and the first artificial life conference. And you can probably guess, well, I was interested in all of the above, and specifically interested in how neural models could possibly model the brain, and then with the catalyst of going to that first artificial life conference was just an amazing lineup of people with with Richard Dawkins, Stuart Kaufman, and of course Chris Langton, and Don Farmer, and Steen Rasmussen, and Norm Packard, and, and, and on and on and on. It was truly a life-altering experience. I, I, I sat through that, listened to all the things they had to say, and said, well, okay, I know what I'm going to do now. I went back and proposed this crazy, uh, wild-eyed project to Alan. He read the, uh, the proposal I turned into him, and he said, good cool, go do it. And in fact, bought a Silicon Graphics Iris 240 GTX to put into my home in Laurel Canyon, and I just dove into the code for the next two years and and didn't surface until I was headed off to the Alive 3 conference to present the Polyworld. So that's in 94, I guess. 94 is actually when the uh, proceedings ended up being published, but the conference itself was in 92, for what it's worth. But in terms of the, the transition, you moved from the Vivarium program to doing other kinds of research at Apple. But the thing that struck me, I mean, I started developing Noble 8 in 96, and certainly my early communications with the folks at Apple was that they really got what artificial life was, as you've described, as a, a vehicle for things like user interface and also for aspects of processing and these kind of things. Can you describe what it was like working at Apple initially and, and what elements changed and stayed the same in, in your time at Apple? Oh, it really was a, a time of a lot of change. When I first went in, it was just about the time, let's see, I went there in 87, and that was about the time that Steve Jobs had just been forced out, and so the company was already going through some you know, very high-level changes. But at the time, the Advanced Technology Group is what they called the research group, and that's what I joined. That's what Alan was in. And it really was a thriving, really interesting research group. And with, Alan had just helped Apple order the, their Cray XMP supercomputer, and, of course, I had a lot of experience using a Cray XMP supercomputer at uh, Digital Productions right before that, and even before that for the computational fluid dynamics that I'd been doing before I went into computer graphics. And so I went and did a number of projects there, 
on the, using the Cray. It's where I sort of cut my teeth on neural networks uh, using that Cray. Terry Sinowski is a world-renowned figure in the area of neural networks and one of the co-founders of the NIPS conferences and so on. And he uh, had done something called NetTalk in the earliest days. It was a speech synthesis program. And I replicated that work, writing the code from scratch, the, uh, my, the first, my first backprop uh, neural network system, and then added syllabic stress to it. So it, it sort of improved on it a little bit. And it was a really learning experience, really great environment. And um, there was a tremendous amount of work going on. I mean, a lot of the ideas that went into QuickTime came out of uh, the, this research group, the handwriting recognizer. I guess it's worth saying one of the things that changed over the years was that research got less and less basic, less and less general purpose, and more and more applied. And in particular, after I had done Polyworld, I you know, was basically asked, is this going to ship in a product in two to three years? And I had to be honest and say no, so I was kind of politely asked could I do something that would be shipped in a product before terribly long, and so I went off and did handwriting recognition, which took advantage of the neural networks that I'd been applying in Polyworld, and, and particularly the backprop neural networks I'd been experimenting with previously on the Cray, and turned it into what became the print recognizer in the Newton, the first genuinely usable handwriting recognition system generally claimed, and what is now, in fact, Inkwell in Mac OS X. So as it became more and more focused, more and more applied, in fact, oh, I'm trying to remember the precise year, but it, it got to the point that ultimately the advanced technology group finally was disbanded entirely. I could have stayed at Apple at that time. The Newton group uh, was still in existence, and they were asking me to stay and saying, you know, come Was on. it 95? That's about right. That's yeah. about right. Uh, 1995. And, uh, but I, at the time, Apple was giving really, really amazing severance packages. So to be honest, I, I took my severance bonus and, and left Apple for a little while, and uh, I hoped sincerely that I could license my own software from Apple and do a startup based on handwriting recognition, but they wouldn't let go of the intellectual property. So ultimately, I ended up going back to Apple, and, and, and all, all total, I was with the company for about 18 years. Towards the end, Steve Jobs came back, and just as the company was really, truly going down the tubes, and obviously turned it around rather dramatically, and so I saw the resurgence. But one of the ways he turned it around was an extreme focus on what we can build and ship now. And so research is still not a big part of Apple. I mean, I've worked with four generations of engineers at Apple now, and some of them are in their early 20s. <laughs> and what strikes me with regards to the folks that come through Apple is they wouldn't go to a company like Microsoft in some regard. They wouldn't go to a startup. There are things that they like about Apple still. But there's also, as you say now, a kind of hyper-pragmatism, but they still seem to get what artificial life is. When you came back to Apple, was there an internal understanding of Polyworld? Did they know who you were in an artificial life context? I don't think so. I, honestly, after about 92, what I wanted most to do with my life was more artificial life research. But what I did with my life was handwriting recognition. And uh, I mean, it got to the point that when I rejoined Apple, the purpose was, in fact, to take that technology that had been shipped in the Newton and put it into Mac. At the time, we were just transitioning from Mac OS 9 to Mac OS 10. And in fact, we implemented a complete solution in Mac OS 9 
got it to alpha level readiness, actually a very, very high quality alpha. We, we pretty much eliminated all known bugs, pretty much a good beta. And then marketing said, no new features on nine. <laughs> so it was back to the drawing boards and, and do it all over for OS 10, which is very different underneath, of course, being, being BSD Unix. And uh, in fact, I mean, and then I ended up doing so much low-level detailed work, it wasn't even really handwriting recognition anymore. I, I redesigned the mouse event for Mac OS X in order to get the right stuff out of the tablet and into the operating system. So it was really low-level stuff at that point. Um, it was still it was a great intellectual challenge, and doing that, I had to touch every level of the system in order to make it work properly. But at all this time, a decade, a little over a decade, I had been looking for ways to get the artificial life work funded again and get back to that, which is how I ended up at Indiana University. I was so grateful that they had this school of informatics forming and being very interdisciplinary and very aware of uh, my previous work to my great astonishment and pleasure and um, were interested in this, this comp forming this complex systems group that had as a, one of its components artificial life. And they let me come on board there and, and, and get back to the research that I've been trying to do for a very long time. Well, before we talk about that, I'm interested in exploring a bit more with regards to Polyworld. Obviously, I mean, it was at Apple. It was, was the source owned by Apple for any period of time? You, actually, you're talking to one of the few people <laughs> in the history of the company who managed to get some source code over the firewall and out the door. I spoke to all the appropriate people, got all the appropriate permissions, and was able to release the source code for Polyworld back in 1992 when I when I went to the Alive conference I was able to say and by the way the source code is here on this FTP server the web as as it exists today didn't wasn't even around really then and uh so it wasn't like I put up a web page but I was able to give an FTP address and say here's the source code and which obviously has turned out to be a very good thing to have done for myself now as well, since I'm no longer with Apple, but I have my source code and have extended it greatly. And it is open source. It's on SourceForge. It sounds like you were doing open source before it was open source. I honestly am not sure when the first people started you know, making a big push for open source, but I've, I've certainly managed to accomplish it uh, in the early days. So in terms of folk listening who may have uh, looked at Polyworlds briefly or are not familiar with the project, can you give a, a potted introduction to it? In brief, it's a computational ecology. Inside this ecology are uh, a lot of agents, little trapezoidal agents running around. Everything they do consumes energy, and uh, so uh, just moving, turning, eating, mating, these primitive behaviors all consume energy. And also, all those behaviors are driven by a neural network, and every time step of activation of the neural networks and for every synapse involved, there's an additional cost, additional energy consumption. So basically, they then have to go out and find and eat food, they can also find and eat, they can find and kill and eat other agents. And uh, so there's natural predator-prey relations fall out of it. And what drives evolution in this system are those neural networks. The wiring diagram of those brains is encoded in the genome of the agents. And the key thing that evolves over time in Polyworld are the wiring diagrams of these brains. And the, the, the goal is... is really and truly to sort of approach artificial intelligence by the vehicle of artificial life and kind of work my way up this 
intelligence spectrum from the simplest possible cognitive agents all the way up to, you know, advanced intelligence at some point, one hopes. And the neural networks grow, don't they? I mean, is the limiting factor with regards to the size of the neural networks just the amount of energy the agent can consume? There is, with that penalty for, uh, you know, basically a penalty for using, uh, consuming additional energy for a larger brain, there's an evolutionary pressure to use sort of the smallest brain that will solve the behavioral tasks of the agent in the world. And in fact, I'm, I'm in the process now of trying to quantify a careful characterization of the complexity of the dynamics of these neural networks using an information theoretic measure of complexity. I got to a certain point with these agents where in the early runs, in the early worlds I was building, the behaviors that were coming out, you could kind of point to them and go, oh, they're doing X. You could point to it and say, they're, they're all running around the edge, and that's where they find each other, and they find mates and food by doing this one thing. Or there's the cannibals that all live close together and, and, and kill and eat each other. Or it, the very simple behaviors you could kind of describe in a word or two. And then as I started getting more successful with these things, I started getting kind of foraging behaviors and swarming behaviors and behaviors where you'd look at the population of agents and there was a lot going on, more than you could actually characterize in this sort of artificial ethologist role that I'd been playing to that point. And I realized then that to take the next step, before I really did any more with the system, I needed a way to quantify what was going on. I wanted to move to statistical methods, and in particular I wanted to know are these agents actually getting more intelligent? Are they actually getting more complex in terms of their neural dynamics? Enter Olaf Sporns, uh, Giulio Tononi, and Gerald Edelman, and Olaf Sporns being a frequent collaborator now and at Indiana University, they had come up with an information theoretic measure of complexity of neural dynamics, and they'd done some experiments, run some data. Um, Olaf had a MATLAB script that would calculate this for certain networks. Only with an artificial system like Polyworld could you really go after this metric in a consistent way. I can record the neural activation of every neuron at every time step for the entire life of an agent for all agents. <laughs> and I do that and then analyze those dynamics and have been able to show that in fact you know, complexity is increasing over evolutionary timescales, and in fact, I've been able to tease apart, run a null model version versus the natural selection version, and show that, uh, in fact, complexity is being driven up by natural selection under certain conditions. So now, I finally now have this ruler, this 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 quantitative metric that lets me say whether things are getting more interesting or not. And, and now the next step is to make it so that the range of things the agents can do in the world grows up. And I claim, my, my sincere hope is, that as the complexity, as the complicatedness of the environment and the environmental interactions and agent-agent interactions goes up, so too will there their neural complexity, their intelligence. And the interesting thing with these kind of simulations currently is that they then very heavily into things like anthropology and psychology fundamentally in a kind of abstract sense. And the thing that interested me about Polyworlds is as you're describing this level of complexity increasing to almost forming coherent societies, almost with their own kind of mythology and interaction behavior, which can't be observed, as you're saying, currently but probably exists under there through this complexity. In terms of these kind of uh, anthropological characteristics or these simple societies, 
Have you also taken a high-level view with regards to studying what comes out of Polyworld? Well, like I say, for a, a good while, uh, I sort of just played uh, artificial ethologist. I sort of pretended I was, in fact, watching animal behaviors. But I, I, I don't want to anthropomorphize too much. I don't want to... It's easy to look at these things, and, and some, sometimes you can look at them and say, well, yes, they're swarming here. And I can understand why that's a good behavior, because as long as the bunch of them are doing it, well, they can always easily find mates. But as long as the swarm drifts, as they deplete one food supply, they drift over to a new food supply. And you can think about it logically. I don't think they're thinking about it logically. These are very simple organisms. These are organisms with less than 300 neurons, basically. So we're talking, okay, C. elegans uh, worms have 302 neurons. So I'm kind of just barely at the level of worms. Now, the, the saving grace, in a way, is that I don't have to have anything like an autonomic nervous system. I don't have to do a lot of maintenance of the, the body uh, homeostasis, and, and the uh, behaviors that the thing can, can undertake have one neuron to, go, to move forward, one neuron to turn. So they can devote a whole lot more neurons to sort of, uh, the complicated internal dynamics of the system than the C. elegans, I suspect. But um, nonetheless, they aren't writing theses and figuring out how to set up civilizations just yet. In terms of isolation, both genetic and epigenetic effects of isolation, have you run two divided components of the polyworld simulation and then put the two different groups back together to see if they are similar or if they repel each other? Have you done these kind of studies? Not precisely, although that is certainly something I've long thought would be an interesting thing to do. Is like I do have, I deliberately built in the ability to put barriers in the world that can separate populations, isolate populations. It's important, I think, ultimately to go for speciation and arms races and all the things that we see in natural ecologies. I want to bring to bear uh, in here. But uh, one thing I have done is use those barriers to mostly isolate some populations, but leave a little gap just on one side. And indeed, the behaviors differed from population to population. They weren't enormously different. They were mostly just like the main thing that I could see from the outside, at least. And I never went back and did any other kind of analysis with that system except just to stare at it. But the, the differences that were visibly obvious because the way I color code their behaviors in their bodies was you could see that some groups were heavily expressing their fighting behavior and always had their mating behavior turned on and so they had a high red component, high blue component, and they were kind of purplish. Uh, another group had would only intermittently express the behavior, but uh, the mating behavior, but were always fighting, always fighting. They were they were red. Another one were like always mating, and they weren't fighting at all. They were just basically blue. And then what you would see is that these different domains, kind of almost all do of one domain, would be approximately one color. But then over long time periods, you'd see at those gaps in the barriers, you would see uh, some mixing. You'd see one strategy invading the other, and you'd see it gradually take over. And over a long, long period of time, this was one of the longest runs I ever made back in the old days, you would see an, an entire colony change their strategy gradually to one of the other strategies, and then you'd see that strategy adopted by the next colony, and then the third colony would have dropped yet the other strategy. So it was kind of like, it really was kind of like a distributed tit-for-tat. 
you know, in the iterated prisoner's dilemma problem, the best solution is to basically do what the other guy did last time. And that's what they were doing. They were all kind of doing what the other guy did, and that that seemed to work best in here. In terms of interdisciplinary feedback, and this, I guess, is a component of open source as well, what kinds of users have, have played with Polyworld, and what kind of feedback have they given you? There are about eight or nine developers who've been putting some time and effort into the source code and, 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 and have you know, really been a tremendous help. I'm an, a, a big proponent of open source, both from the provider of the source code and the consumer of the source code and, and, and the consumer of the intelligent resources that can be brought to bear that way. There are a couple of places that have talked about, well, that have set up Polyworld on their local systems and have been considering using it for studying various evolutionary biology questions that they have in mind. I haven't seen any technical papers come out of that yet, so I'm not sure I'm not sure how far that will get. I just, I don't know yet. I do have a couple of collaborations uh, just started up after the, uh, the most recent Artificial Life Conference, Art- Artificial Life 11 in Winchester, UK, with, well, see, um, Anil Seth at uh, Sussex has this causal density measure of the complexity of uh, network dynamics. And, and, and we're looking at applying that to the polyworld brains and comparing it to the way Tononi Sporn's Edelman complexity measure, what it has to say about the, the, the dynamics of these agents. And then uh, Niha I at Max Planck and uh, Daniel Polani at University of Hertfordshire. We've been talking with them uh, and have provided them with a little bit of data to apply a um, causal information flow, uh, another measure of the uh, complexity of, of neural dynamics and network dynamics. And Polyworld happens to generate an awful lot of interesting data of an evolved system that sort of has to be evolutionarily and behaviorally competent, and we already have one means of looking at the complexity of those dynamics. So we now have the opportunity to look at a couple more, and in fact, uh, 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 another whole research area that I'm just looking to open up is uh, to then apply some of the standard network theory, network science measures of the, the metrics that people use to describe network architectures and see, look for correlations between those and these dynamical complexities we're able to calculate, maybe we can actually get to the point that we can simply look at one of these networks and just look at its architecture, just look at its wiring diagram, and figure out how complex it's going to be without even have requiring it to live its life. But uh, that's, that's still sort of pie in the sky. We're, there's a lot of research to be done there yet. It, it does seem fascinating, but it strikes me that, as, as you say, it takes a lot of time for people to play with something before necessarily they produce academic papers. Mm-hmm. But in terms of biology and psychology and all the areas that you seem to say it's not really applicable for, certainly from the conversations having people like Roy Plotnick on, also people like Dick Gordon, I mean, these are, these are fundamentally biologists of one form or another that seem to think that artificial life has a a great degree of uh, assistive role with regards to teaching various concepts and also exploring the science that they're trying to, to probe in the real world. What's your own thinking with regards to this? Oh, I totally agree. I've learned so much about the way evolutionary systems work by building one and, and e- e- experimenting with it. And I think that can certainly be used to help people understand the concepts as, as an educational tool. Uh, in fact, I, I teach a, a class 
on artificial life as an approach to artificial intelligence, which probably sounds familiar. It's my, my research area. Polyworld is one of the, uh, the tools that I use in there. I like to think I lead them down a, uh, a garden path uh, to all these research sources, these different things people have done in the past, Ralph Linsker's work on Infomax Principle and, and Chris Langton's writings and Farmer in Berlin and uh, some things from the A-Life community some things from outside the A-Life community, but all these things that, that come together to corrupt all of the students' minds and convince them that the very best way one can possibly approach artificial intelligence is what I've been doing, this artificial life approach. The claim is slightly stronger from people like Dick Gordon that artificial life can fundamentally teach people about things like intelligence but also some of the gaps in biology that biologists are, are still scratching their heads with regards to. I mean, what you've described is a, a very systematic uh, approach with regards to the existing thinking. But in terms of actually exploring the, the unanswered questions, particularly in science, do you think artificial life has a place in doing that? I do. I think uh, computational models in general have a huge place and an ever-growing role in science. You can use computational models in a in a number of different ways. A PhD student over in cognitive science, Paul Williams, has been doing a very nice job of sort of investigating the philosophical underpinnings of this. At the same time, he's doing some really interesting modeling work and referring to his what, what, what he has to say about it. Basically, you can have a model, you make assumptions, you find correlations between the higher level emergent properties of a system, and when your model correlates well with reality, you can then go in and say, okay, I built the model using these simple principles and it produced the same results as the complex, the biological system. That suggests to me that at least this is kind of a proof of principle that this level of detail, th these kinds of dynamics could be producing those results in the real system. So you get this sort of proof of principle approach. You also have the opaque thought experiment approach. You can, now you can put together things. I mean, in the history of science, it has always been important to reduce the complexity of a problem in order to gain a better understanding of it. And one of the ways, one of the time-honored ways, is, is a Gedanken experiment, an extended thought experiment. Well, with computer models, you can do thought experiments, only make them a bit more precise, a bit more careful. So instead of merely thinking about it, you can say, now let's take the, the artificial system and the biological system and look at the lowest level and let's establish correlations between those and now let's run our artificial model and when we see what is possible what comes out of that that can suggest things that we might expect from the biological system and could even give us you know make predictions and 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 go look for them in the biology so so you basically can do a thought experiment. Uh, Randy Beer likes to call it his work in minimal cognitive systems, basically looking at the frictionless mind. The idea being that when Newton idealized physics to a frictionless world, of course the world isn't actually frictionless, but it allowed him to think about how things work and produce these models that have been useful in physics ever since even though the model is sort of fundamentally wrong in, 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 in critical ways, it's, it's, it's fundamentally right in critical ways as well and allowed scientists to develop an understanding of physics that wouldn't have been possible without it. So we're all trying to look at the frictionless mind to find the sort of 
least common denominator, the, the low-level principles that can produce intelligent behaviors and, and, and intelligent thought. And then just to, to wrap up, there is a, a, a third way that you can do things, which is to sort of look at the relationships between the computer model and biology. So you go in and you look at the methods by which the low-level phenomena in your model cause the high-level phenomena in your model, and then you go and you look at the biological system looking for those same causes, the same kind of causality from low level to high level. and allows you to establish correlations between your model and, and, and uh, biology. In summary, not only is it possible, it's, it's, it's essential, uh, it, it's today's best tool for approaching some of these things, and, and I think we're seeing the impact uh, of this and understanding of this across science with uh, like systems biology becoming more and more important, and a key ingredient of that is is modeling. So I I think the message has actually already been taken to heart by a lot of fields. And we have the benefit of having Ed on the line, and he does this in his his day job in terms of real applications of artificial life for uh, bioinformatics and data mining. Ed, in the discussion so far, do you have any questions for Larry? Yeah, I got a question on on your uh, on your poly world. You, you mostly use energy. Is that like you're defining pressure or that you're defining thing that moves things around or do you have other external things you put in like heat or temperature or stuff like that that you, you make the, the guys move around with? Their own neural dynamics uh, cause a particular neuron that's interpreted as a move neuron to cause them to move around. So the, the actual motion is a result of their uh, neural dynamics. In terms of what sort of like makes it necessary for them to carry out certain actions in the world, uh, part of that is indeed this, this energy consumption and their, their need to replenish it, but also uh, just plain old good old natural selection is in operation here. There is, in fact, no fitness function uh, running in Polyworld. The only reason that a particular behavior, a particular wiring diagram propagates in time is that it allowed some agent to survive longer and to, to reproduce, to, to produce more offspring. So it's really just a matter of variation selection and the more offspring, the, the more those genes will be out there in the population. There's a question in the contemporary artificial life community about whether modeling up until mating is the important thing or with epigenetic and societal simulations, whether the aging agent can feed back into the, you know, the young, the, the grandparents kind of metaphor in terms of affecting uh, generations. What's your own view, Larry, with regards to this? Uh, my, I'm, I'm reasonably sure those those hypotheses are, are well, they're, they're certainly reasonable, and I, I think they're even correct. The, the reason uh, Homo sapiens have exploded and taken over the planet and um, live in so many different ecological niches and, and so on is that communication, it was almost certainly necessary for there to be maternal care and possibly even grand parental care because in order for us to evolve the brains that we have, we basically had to take a long time for those brains to mature. And there's sort of, we, humans are, you know, at, especially at one end of the extreme of how long it is before something comes out of the womb until it's ready to take care of itself. So we absolutely had to have the uh, the care mechanism in place in order for us to 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 thrive as, as, as a species. When you when you say you you uh, move the genetic code around in your model, do you like when you 
when when they replicate, do you adjust that, and do you make that based off like the energy level, or oh, and then okay. how do you represent the the genetic code in there? Are you just kind of stringing a few letters together, or, or do you have a real complex model for it? Really, the genetic code is very genetic algorithm like. So there's a string of bytes that's treated in some like in some situations like a string of bytes where each byte with a value of, you know zero to two fifty five translates into some something like the number of neural clusters and that the minimum and maximum are set by the a couple of parameters in this massive world file that sort of describes the physics of the world. The what happens when when two of these agents co-locate in the world, they they occupy approximately the same space and they both express their mating behavior at the same time above some threshold so that the activation of the mate neuron is above some threshold, then they are allowed to reproduce when reproduction happens, these are haploid individuals. They only have one strand of DNA. So I take the string from each of the parents and do crossover and mutation and take the resulting single strand of DNA and give that to the offspring. That then expresses is, is expressed. Basically, the main thing that's going on there is those genes are then expressed as a neural wiring diagram, and uh, that agent then goes off and lives its life. So when you notice those mutations, the SNPs, I'll call them SNPs because that's what I deal with all day long. <laughs> okay. So when we deal with the SNP, do you try and relate that back to the, the phenotype that you see? Do you have a, have you generated any kind of stats to say, oh yeah, I saw this, I've done this mutation, now I have 50,000 mutations, and I can relate these back to activities, you know, they were in a swarm now, or this group swarm. Did you, did you write any outside component to look at that and trend it or something? I have done a little of that. Not a great deal, but I wrote a tool specifically to look at the uh, evolutionary trajectories of a couple of genes because we had some evidence from looking at the connection weights in the, in the uh, brains of these things that they, they were going up significantly over time. It looked like the learning rate was going up, and indeed I, I analyzed the trajectory of that, and the learning rate is itself in the genes. And there's up a couple of other interesting things in the genes, like the number of crossover points is itself in the genes, and the mutation rate is itself in the genes, uh, sort of sort of meta-level genetics. And, and I was able to show that, in fact, the learning rate is growing up rather dramatically. It's one of the most dramatic effects that one sees over, over evolutionary time. So the heavy in learning that is going on at the synapses in these brains turns out to be apparently fairly important to, the, to, to their survival and reproduction. I also uh, worked with a couple of students in the sort of visualization area, and they have put together some interesting tools to allow me to look at the temporal evolution of all the genes. That's a, there's like 2,500 genes. That's, that's a lot, I know, but, uh, and most of them have to do with the, the, the nervous system, the, ne the neural network. But I can, in fact, look at temporal evolution of any subset of those genes or, in fact, the entire thing and turn it into a sort of genetic landscape that lets me see what's changing and what's, what's, which, which directions are uh, being trended in, in, in all these genes. What kind of program are you using for that? Is that like QT or are you using Java or to look at that visual part? Uh, the visual display actually was implemented a couple of different ways. The one that I think sort of persists to this day is, well, the one that looks at all the genes is, is goes right to OpenGL. I think it actually may be QT and then goes to OpenGL underneath. Polyworld itself is on top of QT. 
as a matter of fact. Thanks. Every artificial life developer, every artificial life academic, theorist, muser that we've had on Bios Alive has had a different history of artificial life. I always find it interesting we talk to Jamie Matthews about this specifically. How do you teach the history of artificial life to people in their early 20s, their late teens? <laughs> well, I, I start the uh, course with a Chris Langton paper from either A-Life 1 or A-Life 2. I end it with a Chris Langton paper about his Lambda parameter work because it does a nice job of saying, at least where I first started thinking about information theoretic measures of complexity, somewhere during the middle of this, this semester, I've already had Olaf Sporns in for a guest lecture to talk about his information theoretic measure of complexity. So they've, they've actually seen the sort of better end result, but it's nice to also see the origins. And um, in between, I really do draw on a lot of what I consider influential papers, uh, seminal papers by people. I, I have them read Donald Hebb, an excerpt from Donald Hebb's original book on what has come to be known as Hebbian learning. I have them read Ralph Linsker's original Infomax papers. I, I don't currently require them to read Shannon's uh, original communication theory paper, but uh, papers. But uh, I do have them there as sort of uh, optional extra readings that they they really ought to read. And then I try to give them a um, capsule summary of that. So I introduce them to probability and information theory and try to, like I say, you know, lead them down this garden path with all these influences. So as they come through your course, as they leave your course, do you get a sense of where they're coming from and where they're headed to? Are they all computer science students or do you have some biology, some philosophy, these kind of students? And do you get a sense that they're going out into a diversity of industries or into academia? What's, what's your sense with regards to this? I get a very diverse group. Now, we have a very diverse school. We are the School of Informatics, and it, by definition, is interdisciplinary. And the whole idea behind a School of Informatics, we have a computer science department or division, but we also have a group working on bioinformatics, chemical informatics, musical informatics, uh, social informatics, cybersecurity. There's, there's a real, truly, oh, and human-computer interface and, and, and human-centered design. So a truly broad group of students. And, and I get students from pretty much all of the above, plus some computer, some computer science students, plus some cognitive science students. And so their end direction is, is, is quite different. I've been very, very pleased to have one student who worked with me a great deal, Virgil Griffith, and, and did a tremendous amount of work, really helped move my entire research program along. As an undergraduate, usually you depend on your grad students to do the bulk of the research, but in fact, Virgil was, I, I, I knew when I met him that he was special, and, and we got on really well, and he came and worked with me and did a whole bunch of got a whole bunch of uh, research credits for working with me uh, to, to help finish up his bachelor's. He's now with Christoph Koch at uh, Caltech, the Computational Neuroscience Unit. So I know he's applying this, this, these ideas. And, in fact, uh, he's attempting to apply Giulio Tononi's phi measurement, which is very related to this information theoretic complexity measure, to um, C. elegans, and uh, we hope someday to apply that to polyworld agents. Another student, I just got an email yesterday, I think it was, has now gone on to MIT. It was so, it just completely made my day. She wrote to say that this A-Life course, which I tend to think of as a little bit out there, and I, 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 I want to, you know, I, I, I try to give them a lot of fundamentals as well, but it's, it's pretty, you know, it's out there. It's, it's this, the, the research that I think is most important in the world, 
But nonetheless, I always worry, well, you know, will you ever actually use this in a job? Well, she said that in MIT, where she's pursuing machine learning and a bunch of things, she said this is absolutely the, the best course, the course with the most material that she's actually benefited from and using in her additional coursework at MIT of everything she took at IU. So, but on the other hand, I also get, I get uh, students who are just interested in the ideas behind it who come in from human-centered design and they're probably never going to specifically use these ideas, but they they just wanted to broaden their thinking. But, you know, every once in a while, I had one of those turn around and do a uh, a genetic algorithm for evolving web page design. <laughs> so I uh, actually took these ideas and brought it fully into his field, fully into his specialization. So I, the end result it's highly varied. Simon Harvey has shown that you can do a master's program in artificial life and, and surrounding fields. Do you get the sense that there may actually be a future for an undergraduate stream relating to artificial life? I hope so. I think the relevance of the field is being more broadly recognized these days. It's been very kind of encouraging to see these ideas showing up in a lot of places and the artificial life community and field itself seems to be thriving. The Artificial Life 10 and 11 conferences uh, have been very well attended and had very strong papers in them. ECAL, uh, uh, European Conference on Artificial Life, continues to do good work. Simulation of Adaptive Behavior Conference is doing work, has their own journal. There's the Artificial Life Journal. There's And now IEEE has added an Artificial Life component to their, uh, I forget what they call Computational Intelligence series. It's actually a does seem to I'll be taken a bit more seriously than in my early days, which is is a really good thing. I think it's it's a vital field. What do you see for the future of artificial life, and how can the contemporary community assist you as an artificial life academic? Well, if you know any really really great C plus plus hackers who are interested in this, send them my way. <laughs> the uh, the community as a whole, boy, just keep doing good work. I mean, um, the the most recent A Life conference, Daniel Polani had this quite amazing paper that I, 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 I hope it gets noticed well beyond the, the A-Life community. He proposed a, a, a model that showed how copying a cell can have a certain level of accuracy in, in the copies and introducing a sort of symbolic substrate to assist in the copying can improve copying fidelity. And the, the sort of natural conclusions that they come to is that, in fact, the origin of DNA and the sort of symbolic representation of information inside biological organisms could have come about as a means of improving copying fidelity, which is a really interesting theory. I mean, that, that, that has broad implications if, for all of biology if it's true. You know, there's always a problem with origin of life stuff and stuff that goes back to before we can possibly make measurements. But it's kind of a lovely Darwinian theory of, of how DNA could have come about in the first place. You attended a Graysum meeting in London. What are your thoughts that there are now half a dozen of these groups spread pretty well over North America, but now in Europe as well, that meet on a monthly basis to talk about artificial life? Well, that's great. I'm glad that there's that level of interest in, in, in the topic and made that interest and enthusiasm spread uh, widely. I, obviously, I am a sort of a strong proponent of a basically evolutionary Darwinian view, not to say Darwinian in exclusion of uh, epigenetic phenomena. For some reason, some people seem to get to, to think that Darwin would have dismissed epigenetic phenomena or something, but he didn't even know about genes. That, that, that's just sort of like 
not the right way to think about it. But I, I'm so glad that uh, people are taking these ideas and, and thinking about them seriously and talking about them. It, it counters some of the overt fundamentalist uh, religious attempts to subvert the education uh, system and subvert the teaching of evolution if the broader the community of people that are thinking about and talking about these ideas and making them readily accessible, the better. I hope some of these uh, groups will even consider, if they, are, if they live in one of these states where the school board is trying to overturn the teaching of evolution, step up to the plate and uh, fight the good fight and keep that from happening. We don't want to be gradually dumbing down the, uh, the, the population of students in the, in, in the United States and, and eliminating science in favor of uh, mythology. I'd like to thank you very much for the opportunity to chat with you this evening, Larry, and please don't let this be your last time on Biotalive. We talk about a number of things that are clearly also of interest to you and hopefully you and Ed will get together in Indiana sometime and set up a, a great some chapter there and continue the discussion on location. Thanks also to Ed for, uh, for calling in and chatting with Larry tonight. Thanks, Ed. Thanks. Our topic next week will be promoting your project, a hobbyist topic following uh, this evening's discussion, but certainly something that bends into all aspects of artificial life. Thanks again to Ed and especially to Larry for calling in. We'll talk to you next week.